Hello, everyone. Welcome to Parliamentary Procedure with Chris and Victor. Welcome to the new year, everyone. This ex- episode is exciting for me because we're going to be talking about the government of Singapore, in particular its parliament. It's a very interesting episode, and I um, hope you enjoy it. My name is Victor. And I'm Chris. So let's start off. Chris, you want to tell us a little bit about Singapore? Yeah, sure. So let me give everyone a quick background on Singapore because I think it's kind of informative on some of what we're going to discuss later. So Singapore itself is a city-state in Southeast Asia. Um, It's located near Malaysia, uh, Indonesia, um, and historically it started out as, um, uh, not started out, but it's the city of Singapore, I believe, was founded by the British. um, And then during decolonialization, it was briefly a member of the Malaysian Federation, and then for a variety of, I think, mildly ethnic-related conflict stuff, um, it left the Singaporean Federation and created its own sovereign state. And the person who started that state um, is sort of—it's basically the father of modern Singapore. He was—he kind of ran the state as a dictatorship for a little while, and then transitioned it into the modern. Um, I guess a democracy is what it is, but the the modern state that it is today, and currently the party that he founded um, for the country is still the ruling party. It dominates the um, parliament. It, of course, therefore dominates all of the actual seats in government, and the current um, leader of the party is actually the first leader's son, so it's still very, like, they're they're not necessarily dictators because there is a democratic mandate, or so it seems, but there is sort of a dynastic component to this state, and it does have its origins like many um, post-colonial states in short-term dictatorships, although like, for example, Korea and some of the other sort of Asian tigers, um, it's transitioned away from a sort of dictatorial um, sort of command economy and society, and it's slowly sort of liberalized over time. Um, to, to add to that, I think Singapore also has a very um, interesting history in general. Um, it c- came from the English state. It was part of the English Empire. And then as uh, other you know, external uh, overseas possessions of England have um, left England for independence, Singapore did as well. And so actually in Singapore's uh, laws and um, constitutional structure, you also see influences from other post-colonial states, such as India, uh, in particular, s- several different uh, Singaporean law decisions and also Indian law decisions. There was a time until quite recently, actually, that uh, part of uh, appellate authority of Singapore's legal system was also constituted in the English Privy Council. So I think Singapore is actually a very interesting country to see how it evolved in time. Okay, so one, I guess, other important thing for everyone to note. Um, uh, so I think many people should be aware that Singapore is sort of, uh, it's a very, it's, it's considered a wealthy country. It has a lot, it leads a lot of metrics or is up in the in the top sort of tables, top of tables on a lot of different metrics for quality of life or sort of uh, any number of good sort of positive things for a country. So it's this, what's so interesting, as Victor pointed out, is it's it's this blend of, there's the sort of the British decolonialism, then there's the sort of Southeast Asian component where there's large ethnic um, contingencies from different groups. So there's Malaysians, there's a large Chinese population, there's a large Indian population, and I think there's some other significant minorities. Um, so you have a blend of ethnic groups, you have a blend of religions, and then there's also um, a large com- class component that's tied through a lot of these ethnic groups. For example, I think many Chinese people in Singapore tend to be engaged in more of sort of the commercial aspects, like historically that's where they've dominated. Um, but so it's this very complex, intricate society wrapped up in a tiny city-state. Um, and as a result, so while it decolonialized, like Victor said, it, it had this interesting, like it, it's adopted a Westminster model of democracy, so it has a parliament. And I guess What's interesting, though, is we have to remember that this is a country that came from a dictatorship and sort of shifted into a more democratic way of doing things. So um, one of the main things we're going to look at, I think, today is some of the ways in which the nature of Singapore has shifted. Like, there are clearly democratic aspects, but you can also see that it's not the sort of 
pure dem democratic process, there's these structural parts of the, the system of parliament and some of the rules for parliament's members that clearly highlight a, a more authoritarian sort of element within Singaporean society. So I think that's it's 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 going to be interesting to look at that and see how this this tiny state has become a very successful one, but without the sort of full liberal democracy that we are typically taught is like the key to success in the world. At the, at the same time, I would I don't know if I would really classify Singapore as a dictatorship. Uh, at some point, you, I, I, not anymore for sure, or even in the past. I don't know if Singapore really was ever uh, quote unquote dic dictatorship. Um, I think there was definitely a very a very strong leadership in Singapore. So perhaps there was a very, um, a lot of power consolidated in one person, but I don't think, at least from a formalistic perspective, there, there was a dictatorship. I mean, maybe functionally equivalent to a dictatorship at some point, but I, I don't know if that's really fully justified. Yeah, that could be fair. But so I guess we, we I feel like we've given a fair amount of background right now. So just as like, I think the, even the average person right now should know a little bit enough about about Singapore for us to kind of move into a little bit more about its some of the unique elements of its parliament. So like I mentioned earlier, just to add one more thing that I want to uh, mention is Singapore also has had this dramatic um, expansion of the quality of life in Singapore. So over the past 50 years, Singapore has grown its economy, has grown its um, main portions of the economy and has developed into a very prosperous and very industrialized and very just rich state um, as compared to all its neighbors. So I think there's interest in, at least for me in particular, to understand what are the government structures that could potentially lead to its growth. Right. I absolutely agree. So with that being said, I think the, the place we're going to look at, I think for, for our, our case, is we're going to look at Parliament, and in particular some of the more interesting um representational features of, of Singaporean Parliament that aren't necessarily found in uh, the British model or there aren't really clear parallels, say, in the American model, even though that's that's uh, different in, in a variety of other ways as well. So do you want to take us through some of the these differences in its Parliament, Victor? Sure. So as typically know, a Westminster system consists of a Parliament composed of two houses where the lower house is directly elected and the members of this house are typically called members of parliament. Singapore, due to its history, only has one house because essentially, when as Chris previously mentioned, Singapore was part of the Federation of Malaysia and then it left. And at that point, uh, Singapore's lower house, which was essentially what existed prior to Singapore leaving Malaysia, essentially Malaysia's uh, upper house was Singapore's upper house as well. Um, when Sing Singapore left, it had a lot of uh, pressing political questions to resolve and the question of upper house was never really resolved and due to that singapore is a unitary uh, parliament so which is consisted of a number of members of parliament directly elected uh, so singapore has uh, taken time to change up the constitutional structure as compared to other westminster democracies and there's been a number of reforms and um, innovations as you might call them that singapore has adopted over the years so the first thing that Singapore has adopted is the creation of not just single member constituencies, but group member group representation constituencies. So these constituencies allow for the for the representation of a portion of Singapore by more than one person. So, for example, the people who reside in a group representation constituency elect a member of parliament, not as one member of parliament, but as a slate. So you don't vote for a particular member of parliament, you vote for a particular slate that you want to represent you from that constituency. This is similar like voting for president and vice president, you don't vote for a particular candidate, you vote for the slate. Uh, so similar in, in Singapore, they vote for slates of candidates. And these um, candidates can then be members of different racial and ethnic minorities in Singapore. So this has been hailed as one of the ways that they maintain a uh, a fairness in representation in parliament. So just to be just to clarify, Victor, when you say these candidate these slates allow a multi sort of a, a diverse selection of candidates, is that so the to me intuitively that would mean because there's a slate of people that you can have sort of 
let's say there's sort of a predominant group in society, you can have one of your slate members have be from, from that group, so the group will vote for them, and then you can also fill in other diversity people who might not win if they had to just run by themselves, but because they can tack on, you know, with a more, you know, uh, I guess, publicly acceptable candidate, you get their divert. they get to actually have the opportunity to sort of win their race, because otherwise they would kind of get swamped because of the ethnic, like, differences. Yes, exactly. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, in in this selection of the, of what's colloquially referred to as a GRC, um, so group representation constituencies, it's actually primarily at the discretion of the Singaporean cabinet to determine how many members are going to be in a particular GRC, of course, um, subject to I believe, um, population representation requirements so that each candidate represents a similar number of people. It's also important to note here that the Singaporean constitution does define um, a, a few different, like, clear racial categories within Singapore. Um, so there are, like, these are somewhat fixed categories, if I remember correctly, uh, of uh, of, like, what sort of racial groups exist recognized in Singaporean society. Yeah, so there's a requirement that in a GRC that at least one of the candidates must be a person belonging to the Malay, Indian, or other minority community in Singapore. Uh, so this essentially has been an innovation to preserve essentially um, essentially racial equity in Singapore. Yeah, and this isn't the only democratic system to uh, to use some sort of intent like a clear recognition of racial imbalances and racial relationships i think uh lebanon does something similar where there's a powering sharing agreement between its um major ethnic groups where the like one of the ethnic group a member of each ethnic group has to occupy one of the major offices of the state so like the idea of explicitly incorporating a racialized element in democratic processes isn't necessarily innovative exclusively to singapore but it's certainly like uh, i think i I would say leading um in some ways compared to a lot of western democracies yeah and just to also um clarify the minority status of candidates who are parts of the of a grc slate are determined by two committees appointed by the president so there's this malay community committee and the indian other Minority Communities Committee that is appointed by the president and their decisions are final and not reviewable in court or appealable. Um, so this also serves as a, I guess, a interesting solution to determining these questions. Um, so some might argue that there could be too much power concentrated in the president to essentially have, a, um, essentially have this selection, but it doesn't seem like this has been questioned too much. There's yeah, I do believe there are some like there 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 are relatively clear standards for what what person is going to count for which racial group. I, I think there's like uh, me. I want to say, and I could be conflating this with something else, but there's some like catch-all provision where like if the group recognizes like the, the surefire way for someone to count as a rec- a racial group member is if that group or a, like a prominent number of members of that group have recognized that person as a uh, member of the community. So, like, if you were, say, awarded, like, by, like if there was, say, an Indian Chamber of Commerce or the Indians of Singapore's Chamber of Commerce and you were awarded, like, member of the year or something, that might serve as proof that you qualify or identified as a member of that community for the purposes of, of uh, this sort of um, process. Yeah. And... um. Lastly, there are some monetary requirements to run for election in Singapore. So in order to run in one of these spots, you have to deposit um, 8% of the total uh, salary of an MP in the calendar year preceding the election around the 10 years, 500 Singaporean dollars. So, hmm. yeah. That is an interesting and, system. And you, I think... and you also forfeit your deposit if you don't receive at least one-eighth of the total number of votes um, in the GRC. Hmm. I wonder if any of that goes into campaign financing for the candidates. Actually. Or if it's just registration costs. I... Like, I mean, I wonder if there's a pool of, uh, of campaign finance. Like, because certain systems will have all the candidates 
uh, who qualify at a certain level get to draw from a common pool of funding. Yeah. Anyway, so the next two types of members of parliament is actually a completely new innovation created by Singapore. So Singapore has another category of members of parliament called non-constituency members of parliament. This was essentially introduced by the majority parliament in 1984 because the parliament had essentially dominated, the party had dominated parliament for a number of years, and this majority party had essentially had control of every single seat in parliament. So in general, the majority party has always had full control of parliament in Singapore, and for for many, many years, and I still think at present, the majority parliament has essentially a veto-proof constitutional amendment majority in parliament. So essentially, the majority party can introduce constitutional amendments at will. But yet, they seem to actually have adopted some interesting amendments that in some sense could arguably have decreased their power. So one of these amendments was the creation of non-constituency members of parliament, which essentially mandates a minimum number of opposition members of parliament in parliament. So yeah, this is a very interesting feature, especially if if you're buying into the idea that um, democracies are, are supposed to really be representative bodies, and if there is clearly opposition in the country, but they're never represented, that's that's kind of a failure of the system. So I like I like this feature a lot. I think this is a pretty cool one. So essentially, how this feature works is to become a non-constituency member of parliament, you must have polled not less than fifteen percent of the total number of valid votes in the electoral district where you ran. And basically, the unelected candidate who received the highest percentage of votes is entitled to be declared the first non-constituency member of parliament, followed by the second one, the third one, and so on. However, there is twelve there's up to 12 non-constituency members of parliament in each parliament, but this number is 12 minus the number of opposition members of parliament elected. So... For example, in the previous elections, there was 10 opposition members of parliament elected, so that means there's only two non-constituency members right. of parliament. So there's a guaranteed 12 opposition members in any given parliament, but it doesn't necessarily mean all of them actually didn't win an election. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and I like the system a lot. Sorry, continue. Yes, uh, and lastly, there is this nominated member of parliament as part of Singapore's parliament. So these members are nominated by essentially a committee that's formed out of parliament that um, and the quote-unquote criteria for nomination are distinguished public service, have brought honor to Singapore, have distinguished themselves in fields of arts, sciences, business, industry, professions, or other, other uh, social or community service, or the labor movement. So these categories are particularly broad and the, there's a constitutional requirement for these members to be nonpartisan in Singa in the Singaporean Parliament. So all nine of these members are nonpartisan, and essentially they're there to bring a voice to communities that might not be typically represented by major parties in Singapore. Uh, well, would it be fair to say this is more of a technocratic element as well? Um, yeah, I don't know because the way sorry, like the formulation you just gave made me think maybe it's like representing underrepresented minorities like poverty like people of low income or like um things like that but it does to my knowledge this isn't really that sort of underrepresentation it is very much more a technocratic style of representation yes i think it's there to i mean there's many reasons why there there's some articles that argue that it's it, it's also something that's introduced by the majority party to allow them to preserve their status as a majority party to prevent essentially um to essentially allow the majority party to subsume uh, new policy ideas that they wouldn't necessarily come up with, but would hear about through essentially the nomination of these leaders that come from like distinguished parts of the Singaporean community. Um, there's other arguments that essentially these uh, nominations serve to essentially allow for these different parts of society that, once again, uh, maybe they're from more of an elite Singaporean community, but part of the community that wouldn't necessarily be people who run for office in Singapore. These members of parliament are essentially mostly have full voice and vote. Um, in fact, they have full voice in all matters, but 
they are restricted from voting on matters that amend the Constitution. They're restricted on essentially voting on supply bills. So uh, mem- nominating members of Parliament can, for example, deprive the government of supply. They can't vote on money bills. They can't they can't vote on votes of no confidence, and they can't vote on removing the president from office. So there's a number of limitation of these members, but essentially on any general laws or other bills, these members have full voice and vote. However, you know what? Sorry, continue. However, the uh, non-consistency members of parliament have full voice and vote. This is actually quite a recent innovation. I believe this came about in 2000, in the late 2010s, where um, the non-consistency members were given full voice and vote on all issues. But uh, the nominated members of parliament have had this uh, restriction for quite a while and has remained that way. Right. So, what? What? Wait. Something you just said kind of sparked something for me. And what that was is with these nominated members of parliament, especially with the idea that they kind of have a voice in pretty much everything, but they do have limited voting rights. Um, it reminds me a little bit of the sort of evolution of uh, England's House of Lords, where today it does have some voting rights and stuff like that, but it serves primarily an advisory function. I like the idea. Like I could see. In a unitary body, the, the these members, these nominated members, who seeming who seem to be more technocratic in nature, are kind of filling a a House of Lords esque function where, if their job is to sort of bring these more, they're not necessarily politicians. These are, you know, they could be a leading business person, they could be a professor of you know economics or of history or things like that. Like they're going to bring a a perspective that. Is useful to hear in the deliberation process, but um, since they don't actually have a, a democratic mandate, there is reasons to say, well, why should you get to vote on things like money bills and stuff like that? So it's a blending of having good deliberative processes and good debate, which is important in a legislative process, while also preserving that sort of democratic aspect or at least representational aspect of, you know, if you didn't, if I didn't vote for you, why do you get to tell me how much money I have to pay or something like that? It's an interest. I think it's an interesting sort of blend. And I, I also think the the other idea that you talked about yeah, that these sort of members allow for sort of the creation of policies outside of majority party things that perhaps just a sort of a diversity opinion, even if it's not an opposition opinion. I think that's a very useful thing for government to have, especially one where it has been dominated by this majority party for a long time. I think it's a great way of um, creating a system where there's sort of a release valve where if you don't want to be a member of the leading party, you can still contribute to the state state and society, even at a legislative level, without having to actually you know, agree with all of the things that the leadership is saying, or, or the country's leadership. So with that, let's move on to the parliament. So due to the constitutional structures of Singapore, the privileges and immunities of parliament are not actually spelled out in the constitution. So whereas most uh, most governments with a constitution have actually explicitly laid out particular privileges and immunities of parliament and members of parliament in their constitutions, uh, constitutions other countries, like for example England, they don't really have a constitution. They have a, essentially a set of laws that are considered part of like the English Constitution. They don't have a constitution with like a capital C. Yes. The way to put yes. It. Um, and Parliament, of course, in England is free to amend any previous law, so they could completely amend any constitutional structure by majority vote. Uh, they are the supreme law of the land. Yes. Uh, in Singapore, there is certainly this cons- constitutional law in Singapore which has supermajority requirements to amend. And this lo- this constitution specifically states that Parliament's privileges and immunities can be decided by Parliament through, essentially, legislation as um, Parliament would decide any other matter. So, uh, that's not exactly the language of the Constitution, but essentially the Constitution leaves the ability of Parliament to decide their privileges and immunities. So, most of the privileges and immunities that we'll discuss today actually stem from the Parliament's Privileges, Immunities, and Powers Act that defines the scope of parliamentary privilege in Singapore. Do you want to give us an overview of some of the things that sure. this act defines? Sure. So the, this act covers a lot of things. It, uh, it covers 
you know, all the privileges and immunities and powers, in fact, of uh, of the parliament or the members of the parliament of Singapore. But in particular, we're going to kind of focus on three sort of main elements of this law. So first is there is a freedom of speech debate and proceedings guarantee. Um, the other thing there is a ability for members to be held in contempt by parliament. Um, and lastly, there's sort of we're going to look into some of the general offenses that might lead to a member being held in contempt of parliament. So to go back to this this first thing we want to address, this freedom of speech debate and proceedings. Um, yeah, so in Singapore, um, like it may have this dominant um, political party, but the constitution and, and I guess this act of parliament guarantee that MPs have a freedom of speech such that they can't be imprisoned for anything that they say in um, Parliament. So, like, they can't be sued in an outside court within Singapore or any other jurisdiction, although Singapore would have a hard time enforcing that. But uh, they can't be sued for what they do in Parliament. Um, this is, I think, and Victor, feel free to chime in if you want, but this is a, to me, it's kind of a cornerstone of uh, the sort of, parliamentary and democratic sort of model as far as i know for debate processes like i can't imagine how you could have a fair system of a legislature if legislators were not allowed to say like almost whatever they wanted to in the process i don't know what do you think victor i mean i think we as a society are even questioning this right now i generally believe in uh speech and debate immunities in like legislative bodies but for example, the actions by uh, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and other representatives in the House were being questioned recently due to their um, potentials to overturn a democratic election in the United States. So there seems to be a lot of uh, dissent from this view, at least at present in the U.S. society. But at the same time, uh, the resolution of these issues isn't through the courts or anything of that matter. I think the resolution of these issues, like Singapore and Parliament decides to do, is resolution through political means in Parliament itself. So, for example, right. in our constitution, there's a requirement that's uh, that representatives, representatives and senators have essentially these speech and debate privileges in the House and Senate. So, anything they say, they can't be questioned in any other place. However, they can't be questioned in that place. So, for example, it's the House and Senate do have the right to essentially sanction or otherwise remove privileges and restrictions from particular members for what they said. However, they can't. There's no penalties outside of that place. So, for example, right. if a senator or representative reveals classified information, even that they didn't obtain through the legislative role, but they still reveal it in a speech or debate in like a Congress or in a committee or anything of, of the nature that it's like the legislative function that's tangential to um, con uh, speaking in, in a, a committee, speaking in Congress, speaking on the House floor, they will suffer no criminal liability. Uh, this is an absolute bar. So, for example, if you slander, if you defame anyone in a speech on the House floor, you still have the full immunities that come with that. So nobody could sue you for that, for that slander or defamation. Um, right. So question though so this this is that's that's how it works in the u.s in theory that's how it works in singapore um is there any reason to doubt that that is how it functions in practice in singapore because like we've been talking about there's a dominant political party it has made concessions recently to sort of opposition figures but like like i've said singapore for could be classed i think in many ways, or at least it historically, it could have been as a dictatorship. So, but let's if, let's actually if we, let's actually just dig yeah. a little deeper, not just on the surface of it that you can't be questioned in uh -huh. place. But for example, I mean, even in the U.S., the speech and debate powers are still regularly questioned by the the chamber itself where they're exercised. So, for example, um, in early during the Trump administration, uh, Elizabeth Warren started um, discussing. Or start debating the, I guess the ethics and just the general nature of um, Trump's uh, appointee as Attorney General, uh, 
Jeff Jeff Sessions, who was also yeah, former Senator Jeff Sessions, who was also right? the senator at the time, and oh. Senate rules and procedures essentially require that you maintain essentially decorum in addressing other senators, and so because of that, you can't really say um, negative things about other senators because of that fact. So there's essentially a limitation on the Senate floor itself to say. Uh, improper things about other senators and at the time when Elizabeth Warren was giving a speech, Mitch McConnell actually made objection to her giving that speech and Elizabeth Warren was actually stopped from speaking due to her violation of Senate rules and procedures. So this now question though, Victor, real quick, if I can cut in. What is is this rule really an impediment, at least in US context, if a person just uses just a modicum of creativity or cleverness? Isn't it still possible to pretty much say whatever you want? Um, yes, I, I, you, I think know, there's definitely a lot a more bit. potential to to free speech in the U.S. Of course, in Singapore, uh, there's a lot of things that Parliament can do for speech in the Parliament. But in general, it seems like there's not much dissent in Parliament overall. I think that's just uh, just the nature of Parliament itself in Singapore, and also because I think most of the sanctions that we will discuss later on can be imposed by just a simple majority and Singapore's the majority party is as a very large majority so essentially any sanctions they could easily impose on any members of parliament so I think in general the opposition if they want to say something they essentially try to moderate what they say due to the whole environment around Singapore and also due to the fact that maybe um, there's essentially an expectation of essentially civil proceedings in Singapore, which could be essentially both a positive and a negative, um, depending on who you ask. Uh, there's definitely less of an ability to call out what is, what is being done wrong, but at the same time, there's not this incendiary speech that you sometimes see in the United States. Of course, uh, in the United States, we definitely have freedom of speech outside of Parliament as well. We have a very strong First Amendment protection and it's certainly a good thing because uh, the civilians in in the United States essentially enjoy a very similar level of free speech and debate amongst themselves. So, for example, I could say what I'm saying now. I could say I could argue that we need to reform our government. We need to uh, change how we do things, and that's protected by our First Amendment privileges that every single person enjoys in the United States, which is not necessarily the case in other countries, especially Singapore. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess my 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 main takeaway from this section uh, is just that it shouldn't. I, I don't find it particularly surprising that the legislature um, has the right to sort of define, like, whether or not what its members saying is offensive. And seeing as how it's the supreme legislature of the land, it doesn't come as a surprise that. Um, they can remove their members from the jurisdiction of any lesser or like body, like another court. So, to me, it makes sense on a structural level in that sense, and then it also makes sense from a um, a functional perspective. Where um, if you didn't have so, like if in a world where we don't have this protection, um, we lose opinions where it can be you know sometimes it is politically dangerous to say things in parliament but it, it shouldn't necessarily be like life-threatening because it might be you know important for the, the the actual betterment of the country to say things so to have this protection i think is important for the function of an actual legislature and also because like structurally it's just if you're the if you're the highest authority in the land, why should any lesser authority be allowed to tell your members what they can and can't say while they're serving? It just makes sense. Yeah, I think it's a fundamental part of any uh, parliamentary or parliamentary like uh, system. Yeah, so so I don't think it should be necessarily surprising to find that in Singapore's um, system. But moving on to the next sort of thing that becomes a little bit more surprising is some of the powers that Parliament acting in its corporate capacity can wield over any of its individual members. So because there's this sort of ability, Parliament can hold members in contempt. It has that authority. Um, basically, if a member, we're going to look at some of the um, 
offenses that can trigger this uh, in a moment. But just to quickly say, you know, if if a member is found in contempt, they can they can be suspended from their seat. Now, that's pretty standard. That can happen, and I believe in the United States there are circumstances where members can be suspended. Um, they can also, you know, be committed to a prison term, although in theory that's supposed to be limited to the length of the current session. Uh, that's pretty um, important, so keep, just keep, I, I, a, I mean, keep that in mind. U.S. Congresses do have this authority as well, it's just not true. utilized in the bailiff, recent time. Is it the bailiff who's empowered to arrest people? I can't remember the name of the Sergeant person. Sergeant at arms? I don't think. Sergeant at arms, but, that's the but They're before. only empowered to arrest people upon uh, approval by a House or Senate. But I mean that authority exists. Yeah, you can you can right. arrest someone for contempt of the House or so, contempt of the Senate. Is there any time limit in the United States? Yes, it's for, or is it just it's for the duration of the current um, Congress, I believe. At least. Okay, so we have that similar. That was power. defined through case law of the Supreme Court, I believe. Okay, so so that's again, you know, but but keep keep a pin in it because there's an element of this parliamentary power that I think worsens uh, this particular provision but it can also impose fines that's that's not surprising either it can just as we've already said it can suspend the mp or it can just result in sort of the standard reprimand or admonishment but i think the important thing is that one power of parliament that it has is that it can say in theory an mp is limited to a single sort of prison term of no longer than the current session but any new parliament can revisit all of the uh, people who have been imprisoned in the previous session and say, well, actually, we don't think that their punishment has been served long enough. Like, they still need to continue to be punished, and they can continue to hold them for the length of that session as well. So in theory, somebody could be indefinitely imprisoned. And I don't know, I, I guess, I don't think there's a case of this, because uh, I think this is largely theoretical, but... Um, I don't know if there'd be sort of any potential for a habeas petition from that person. Like, I don't know how they would be able to um, get some sort of appellate review of the legislature's decision to indefinitely imprison them. So that, that's an interesting, I think, little wrinkle in in the rule. Definitely in the United Kingdom, there's, I would say there's no appeal if the parliament passes a bill of attainder against you. I think there's more of a constitutional structure, but I'm not sure what they would ever exercised because there's at least on some level uh, a division of powers uh, between different people and different parts of the government so definitely judges are seen as independent in Singapore from the political branches whereas the where it's technically a semi-presidential democracy where there's an elected president but there's also a prime minister chosen by parliament which exercises the majority of the powers of the executive and the president essentially has central reserve powers that the president can exercise. Yeah, but but like so th- that's what I mean. Where I think it's strange is because so if we, if we were going to do a, a sort of a diagram of a hierarchical authority, uh, and th- one way that to do that hierarchy is to put the legislature at the top because it's just the one creating the laws, and the executive below that because it simply has the authority to execute laws created by the uh, the 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 legislature and then of course the courts um you, you might want to probably put them off to the side because they really they just confirm what the law is but there's also sort of super legislatures so facts and stuff like that but to me it follows that the legislature could have this unassailable ability to punish its own members however it wants um i just also don't think that it would ever use it in a way that would be really that abusive because if there there are just easier ways and I think we can get into those later of I think the I majority think, party I think punishing one of members the of the parliament most doesn't like unusual powers of parliament in comparison mm-hmm. with other parliaments is their ability to suspend members of parliament. So typically by supermajority most parliaments can remove members of parliament. Whereas Parliament in Singapore can also suspend members of Parliament. And while the members suspended, they don't have any more privileges and immunities enjoyed by active members of parliament. They are not paid, and they not may not enter the parliamentary grounds. So essentially, uh, parliament can, instead of declaring a seat vacant, can suspend an MP, 
and essentially deprive a part of the country of essentially effective representation, unlike other yeah. members of parliament. But, you know, maybe that would encourage that part of the country during the next election cycle not to vote for that candidate. You know, I think that's... if You know, everybody knows the rules of the system, so if you act in such a way as to get yourself suspended, then uh, your constituency should have you removed if they don't approve of what you're doing that got you removed in the first or suspended. And if they do approve of what you got suspended, then, you know, maybe you'll get reelected. But um, I don't think... I would just push back a little bit on the idea that if they get suspended, if a member is suspended, their their uh, their constituencies lost their representation entirely. I think there can be circumstances where the constituency wants the member to do exactly what they did and is happy with this, like accepting of the the cost of the suspension. Yeah. So it looks like in the UK they have a similar procedure. They ha- they can suspend members of parliament as well. So I guess just is something that. Yeah, I think it's more common in, in maybe the Westminster system. Yeah. Which, incidentally, is also, as we mentioned, because Singapore ha- is sort of this post-colonial nation, its constitution, it claims um, all the same sort of rights and privileges that are traditionally associated with the Parliament of, England, uh, of Great Britain. So, uh, it shouldn't be a surprise that there's a lot of overlap in that respect. Like, the, any of the sort of existing case law at the time of their independence was incorporated into their corpus. So, yeah, and just to bring up about a couple other powers that Parliament has in Singapore, which is similar to other legislators, is Parliament has the power to essentially subpoena persons to order their attendance. They have the power to compel oral testimony. They have the, part, they have the power to essentially expel strangers. In this case, a stranger in Parliament is someone who is not a member of Parliament or an officer of Parliament. Uh, and also, they can impose contempt proceedings over strangers uh, if the strangers essentially commit offenses to Parliament while they're present. So, for example, instead of simply going through the legal court procedure, Parliament can impose contempt on the proceedings on the strangers. So, Victor, I have a question then about strangers and contempt. If a stranger or a group of strangers were to hypothetically, um, I don't know, trespass the bounds of of Singapore's Parliament building. Um, and then, you know, willfully prevent the the Parliament from sitting. Could Parliament find them in contempt, you know, for that? And then I don't know, fine them or or imprison those people. I assume they could. Without going through the rest of the court system. I assume they could. And in addition to whatever court proceedings there are, I think U.S. Congress has those same authorities, just they never exercise them. But I believe the House, if they wanted to, could most certainly find. Um, anyone in contempt in the United States as well. It just it would be limited in duration mm. for the current Congress. Right. But that wouldn't necessarily be a limit in Singapore where there's this rollover potential, which I think is Yes, I think the other limit that currently exists, this is more of a practical limit, but not necessarily a constitutional limit, is Congress has not funded any place in where they where they could imprison people. That are found in contempt of. There's no jail in the in Congress in, in the Congress. Building. I don't think it has been. I don't building. think there's been any funds allocated for a hundred years or so for such a jail. Really? Yeah. Well, maybe we just built them tougher a hundred years ago, and we haven't need to upgrade it. Yeah, I think I think with separation of powers in the United States, there might be mm-hmm. seen a requirement to have the like to make the jailing authority independent of the executive for just practical reasons and maybe even constitutional reasons as maybe the executive has no um, has no right to hold these um, people I could certainly see that uh, so I, I I think there's no like unless unless Congress essentially votes to like turn one of its committee rooms into a jail or something similar then uh, there's no really there's no real. You don't think the sergeant of arms office has like a cell in it? I don't know. I I assume that people who are arrested by like, for example, the Capitol Police or the sergeant of arms are probably given over to the District of Columbia for processing. Mm. I'm not. I could be wrong, but I, or maybe some other federal police branch. In Congress. I don't, but I believe there's been no f- funds for such a interesting procedure. So while this doesn't constitutionally prevent any action from being taken, it's a, essentially an effective prevention of Congress exercising authority. Also, I think there's very broad like um, separation of powers concerns with Congress exercising authority to jail people. 
but it is certainly a reserved power that does exist, but hasn't been used in a long time of Congress in the United States. Right. So just all of these things is essentially provide a background that there's a lot of similarities in these powers. Even though they're technically on the books, they're written out explicitly by Singapore because the parliament is essentially required to pass a law that explicitly dictates the powers of parliament, unlike in the United States, where there's essentially more of a common law tradition of powers of the House and Senate. Uh, these... Well, there's a common law tradition, but the Senate and the House also pass procedural rules. Yes, yes, they do. But, but like, for example, there's nothing in the procedural rules about arresting strangers in the... I mean, don't, don't, I, I don't know for certain, but I believe there's not really a procedure of, like, Congress exercising its inherent contempt powers against people to essentially order them imprisoned. Um, but there's certainly rules about, like, subpoenas and, and required testimony before committees and similar things, but there's no real requirement. These, there's no real rules outlining how Congress goes about imprisoning someone because this is not something that the House or Senate expects to do. It would also kind of be a weird thing if you think about it, because Singapore has a parliament. When I I I don't I don't know how because it's a semi-presidential system. Is there a presentment element where once the prime minister and the government put forward a bill to parliament, presumably it passes because they have an overall majority. Is there a bill? Does the president sign a bill at the end of the day? I I don't actually know that in terms of the semi-presidential system. Because if there isn't that element, then um. Like again, there's no reason for like the three like procedural rules in Congress are not actual laws. They they are because uh, there's no both houses don't have to approve them, and the president doesn't have to sign off on them. Whereas this sort of bill defining the powers of Parliament um, being an actual law makes more sense in a parliamentary system where there isn't that presentment component. So in Singapore, the president has reserved powers. So. Mm-hmm. While the president can certainly, by necessarily directly reading the Constitution, take some actions, most of these actions that the president can take are limited in scope, and they can only be taken with consent of the cabinet. And so, for example, withholding uh, assent, the president can certainly decline to to not withhold assent. But I think if the president wants to withhold assent, um, the cabinet has to be consulted on this issue. So. There is certainly, the president has certain issues over which the president can solely decide whether or not to withhold assent on any bill. And since we're ado- since Singapore adopted the Singaporean system, sorry, since Singapore adopted the system in England and the Kingdom, essentially there's no remedy to withholding assent. So if the chief executive withholds assent, or is it the Queen in England? Uh, there's no procedure by which assent can be overridden. This withholding assent can be overridden. Essentially an absolute veto. Similarly in Singapore, there is no way to override withholding of assent. But the issues on which assent can be withheld are very small. On only, For example, assent can only be withheld on supply bills or other types of similar bills if they're likely to exceed past reserves. So basically, if, um, if there's going to be essentially too much of a deficit the president of singapore can withhold the bill but they can't withhold assent on on the bill for other reasons so i feel like we have a pretty good grounding in the guarantees like we we're saying singapore seems to guarantee a lot of the same rights um of, uh, to its members that other bodies do does that actually translate into practice though like is there any indications that there isn't quite as much freedom as, as it might seem like if we were just reading the the the, the text so just just to specify one more thing, it looks like Singapore has deviated away from the absoluteness of assent in the United Kingdom. So in Singapore, you can actually override assent based on the president acting without essentially the cabinet's essentially without the cabinet's consent on certain issues. Um, then Parliament can override this with withholding the assent on on certain issues as well. But this is a very complicated process, so this only applies to certain issues that presidents withheld assent on. But to go back to the question that Chris brought up, this idea that there's things that are 
written down and then what is actually the Deidre process. In Singapore, many prior essentially opposition politicians have found themselves in hot water, not necessarily for what they've said in Parliament, but what they've said outside of Parliament. And Singapore essentially has a very strong uh, civil defamation, civil liability for false statements, liability for essentially bringing someone to disrepute. And the judgments against these members of Parliament that they essentially accuse their colleagues outside of Parliament of, of various different things can essentially result in very large monetary judgments in court against those members of parliament. And because Singapore's constitution requires every member of parliament to be solvent and not have declared bankruptcy while a member of parliament or within a number of years before they were a member of parliament, uh, the declaration of bankruptcy of a member of parliament leads to them no longer being eligible to be a member of parliament. So it's a multi-step process, basically. So, yeah, essentially in Singapore, there is a number of issues that can lead to lead, lead to a person being essentially found liable for, for example, false uh, statements or defam defamatory statements. And uh, this leads to essentially a challenge because there's no, there's no essentially strong First Amendment freedom of speech in Singapore like in other countries. Right. So I guess then... What happens is because there's a relatively weak free speech outside of Parliament, it's pretty easy potentially to, if an opposition member says something inflammatory outside of Parliament, use those relatively loose free speech laws, hit somebody up with this defamation suit, basically end up in a situation where they have a fine that's so large that they're bankrupt, and boom, you've got them out of Parliament. You don't have to worry about integrating the internal uh, perspective from from. From on paper, they've gotten all their freedoms, they've been totally respected as a member of parliament, but we've still managed to get rid of a troublesome influence, potentially. It's kind of how it looks like it plays out. Yeah, something like that. I think I think one more thing to discuss while we're thinking about what is the actual ability of the opposition to exercise these powers is to discuss some prior cases, and as well as to discuss the current status quo. So one of the first members of parliament to be a op to be essentially a opposition member is um joshua benjamin gr retnam uh, also known as jbj in singapore he's essentially a politician in singapore as well as a lawyer and he essentially was the leader of the workers party he was the first opposition politician to be elected in singapore when he was elected in 1984. Uh, he was in Parliament for only a couple of years before he was convicted for uh, falsely counting the party's funds, so he lost his seat as soon as he was convicted. Um, eventually, his conviction was overturned by the, the Privy Council in England, and then he ran for election again in Parliament. And he didn't win a seat, but he received a sufficient number of votes to become a non-constituency member of Parliament. This time he became a non-constituent member of parliament. He was a member of parliament for a few years, but then in 2001 he was declared bankrupt because he couldn't uh, keep up with payments for uh, damages owed to the leading party in Singapore due to a liable suit. So essentially there's a number of um, ways that opposition politicians have found themselves in hot water and without seat in parliament, without parliament actually taking direct action. So most of these reasons why this opposition member of parliament was removed from office wasn't due to his actions in parliament. So you could argue that his mem membership in parliament was not the cause of him being removed from parliament, but it was these other issues. But at the same time, he was found um, to have committed libel against the leading party in Singapore. He was also uh, convicted of falsely accounting the party his party's funds. But there's definitely ways that the ruling party has taken to uh, essentially maybe suppressing the opposition on some level in Singapore. Given that we, it's pretty clear that there's some ways to suppress the opposition, how does that track with some of the stuff we talked about earlier, how the government, which has historically dominated elections, um, has been making moves to at least 
loosen the political strings. You know, we have these not what is it not constituency members, but essentially these people who didn't actually win enough votes to get into office, but are still being put into office. We we have other sort of diversity candidates. So how do we square the idea that Singapore seems to allow opposition, but at the same time there are cases where it has seem to use its laws to silence that opposition outside of parliament. Like, what what do you think the relationship there is? I don't know. To be honest. I, if, I, if I could take a stab at it, I think it partly might come back to the idea again that I have, I'm, I'm more comfortable than you seem to be to, to call basically Singapore, to me, is sort of a dictatorship. It dresses itself up in democratic clothing, but um, when your prime minister is the previous leader's son, uh, when the party never loses any of the major elections, when all of the moves that the opposition are allowed to make are kind of seemingly for show in the sense that, sure, they're allowed to make their speeches in parliament, but when they want to, you know, say inflammatory things, that starts to actually get them in trouble um, outside of parliament. Um, you know, when it just it doesn't it it screams to me the 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 attempt of sort of sort of like an enlightened dictatorship to appear to sort of attempt to be appeasing its citizens by giving them an opposition party or opposition parties to be outlets for like uh, dissatisfaction but without any real ability to ever gain the actual gov- like seat of government that's that's how it feels to me when i look at this sort of stuff I I I would I would maybe think of Singapore as more of an autocratic regime. I don't know if it's necessarily a dictatorial regime. I think so. In recent times, there has been the growth of an opposition party in Singapore. So this party's actually won ten seats in direct right. elections, which means if and only it's still they're still getting two more seats from from this extra. Actually, a different party is ah, getting okay. these non. Yeah. So this party party is actually I think this party is just very conservative in making sure they contest elections where they have a good chance of winning. Um but yeah, it seems like this new party is quite interesting in its approach. So this uh newest party, uh it's called the Workers' Party. It's led by uh, uh it's it's led by Pritam Singh, S I N G H. And this approach has essentially been to essentially have this party be a alternative method of policy generation in Singapore. So uh, this party leader, due to his success in uh, contesting these seats and winning a sizable share problem as compared to prior uh, prior results by minority parties in Singapore, was actually given the official title of leader of the opposition by Singapore, whereas in previous terms the, the leader of opposition title was a was a non-official title. Here uh, the leader of the Workers' Party is essentially given the official title of leader of the opposition. And it seems like they're actually supporting this office with some additional funding as compared to in the past. So it seems like there's some development of the opposition party. But I think one key metric to point out is uh, this leader of the opposition has been very careful to not uh, defame or essentially slide or slander uh, members of the ruling party, I think. I think there is a very knee-jerk reaction based on our our love for freedom of speech in the United States, which I definitely agree with, and I think freedom of speech is generally a good thing. But I think there is a knee-jerk reaction to essentially impose the same standards on other countries, where they don't have the same requirements under law for freedom of speech as we do here in the United no, States. No, but I mean, just because their laws aren't that way doesn't mean that the sort of the moral weight of is it better for their society that they seem to be more willing to suppress? Like, I think it's undoubtedly the case that if if their majority, if the loyal opposition leader has to be constantly careful of what he's saying, just to make sure he doesn't you know, find himself caught out, uh, that's going to have a chilling effect on what he's going to say publicly, and that means that to the extent that people's opinion, like the popular opinion, is truly upset with the government, that voice isn't really going to be truly heard because, you know, you can't call out the corruption of the government if you're going to get hit with a, a lawsuit that 
pushes you out of um, office. Like, yes, I I agree with you. There's definitely a chilling effect, but at the same time, I so this is why I would characterize Singapore as potentially autocratic. I wouldn't necessarily characterize it as a dictatorship because while the the opposition can maintain their rights as an opposition leader as long as they're following the autocratic right, but, but even like exists. but so they get to show up like i think the soviet union had more than one political party too and people voted for the other parties that didn't make them like i mean i guess they're an authoritarian right, dictatorship but, so we're, we're halfway but 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 for example in the soviet union the leader of the country could order anyone imprisoned that's that is um, there more checks and balances there there was no I think Singapore is a pretty well recognized independent independent judiciary. While the laws might be particularly autocratic in Singapore, I think they are exercised in a, in a matter that's um, so more of an authoritarian democracy, I guess, which almost to me feels like a contradiction in terms. I think also, I, I think there's definitely more of the requirement for Singapore to maintain this status because they are such a small nation, they really need to maintain their international prestige and their economy is highly dependent on a very, I guess, uh, uh, on how the nation is seen on an international But here's the question then. Hypothetically, um, shouldn't, if it's a prestige issue and if the Singaporean people are, you know, competent, well-trained people because uh, they've been well-governed, if they were if they were allowed to hear whatever speech they wanted to, like, wouldn't they still make the right choices and do all the right things anyway? Like, I, it just to me it speaks of a certain lack of confidence by the on the part of the leadership that they feel the need to suppress oppositional speech. Because if you're suppressing that speech, one way of interpreting that could be to say, hey, we think it's just dangerous to put this stuff out there because you know it's going to corrupt going to corrupt people. Another way to look at it would be to say, like, we're strong enough, we're confident enough in our own, in, in the ideals of our party and the goals that we stand for, that you can hear whatever else you want. You're still going to think that we're the best pitch at the end of the day. Uh, and they, like, I think that's probably a, a better model. Although maybe the modern day, like, post-Trump, post, you know, factual world, it's safer to have the sort of controlled speech bubble that uh, Singapore has. I think the one exception to the potential like outright dictatorship or essentially very strong autocracy in Singapore is their detainment of uh, communist sympathizers. So Singapore has a very poor history of detainment of uh, people accused of essentially sympathizing with communists. So like, yeah, so like those people have um, have been detained for a while. But at the same time, I think for I would I would still classify Singapore as a democracy. I mean, the United States has detained the people in Guantanamo Bay for a while as well, and uh, and for some reason can't even shut down the the base when uh, the president wants to. Um, so yeah, there is. I think there's there's <clears throat> contradictions in any government, and I think there's definitely. A level of contradiction in Singapore, but I think in general Singapore is, and by contradiction I mean contradiction along this uh, spectrum of uh, very 100% democracy to essentially 100% dictatorship autocracy. But I think I think Singapore is definitely authoritarian and very much so. But I don't think it is. For example. It is definitely a democracy compared with China. It is definitely a democracy compared with a lot of other Asian countries. Um, I think it's also true that if at the next elections the people of Singapore wanted to, they could vote the current ruling party out of power and put in a new party. I don't, I don't think that's going to happen, but I think that is still... You don't think that the ruling party would disallow that? You think there would be a peaceful transition? I don't know. This is a highly theoretical question, but I I assume there will. I assume it. I assume it would be simply because of the fact that Singapore has such a. I I I think I think similar things to what we saw in Taiwan, where the country became democratized 
and there was a there was a peaceful transfer of power. I think you'll see something similar in Singapore if that happens. Fair enough. Uh, that that's that's some good precedent to point to, I suppose. All right. Well, do you have any other sort of closing thoughts on 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 the topic then? I think Singapore is a very interesting country because of how it's been successful in in essentially becoming a much more prosperous country, even though it has essentially remained with single party control for a very long time. Um, I think it's interesting that it is formally a democracy, but at the same time, the single single party hasn't necessarily tried to completely uh, remove all aspects of democracy. I think there is an interesting trend that, unlike in most other nations, you're actually seeing a the, the single party that controls the government trying to actually invite opposition into the government. It might be a controlled opposition, but still an opposition on some level, as compared to other countries, which where I wouldn't see the leading party trying to actively do that. Even countries that are full-fledged democracies, like for example the United States here, we will probably be in the regime where essentially all coordination between the Congress and the House, sorry, and the White House will be through only the majority parties in each chamber. And that's something that will likely continue through the years in the United States. Whereas um, in Singapore, there seems to be at least some growing sentiment to allow for for policy proposals that are opposite those that are proposed by the government, and essentially a very formalized opposition system that, while yes, it is very autocratic and the opposition doesn't necessarily have the full freedoms that they do in other countries, I think it is certainly becoming more liberalized than it has been in the past. I, I think I would kind of echo and agree with a lot of well, what you've said. Um, I would I would strongly uh, echo the, the idea that Singapore is a fascinating country from a sort of a political perspective. Um, it, like when you look when you look at the countries around it, I mean, I, I, to be fair, actually, Indonesia and Malaysia are actually quite uh, important. I think regional economies uh and they're nothing to really sniff at themselves but the fact that singapore has been as successful as it has given its surroundings is kind of it's it's fascinating and we didn't get to cover there's so many other interesting parts about the way that the, like the singaporean civil service the way they'll fund their educational programs tons of their public policy are just very they're that i don't know if cutting edge is the appropriate but they're, they're certainly they're leaders in innovations in a lot of policy areas that it's just it's fascinating to see it take place so while i do i do think that there are certainly elements of it that should give people pause the authoritarian elements that we've discussed um it's still a country that i think is is worthy of a lot of a lot of study it's very it's it's fascinating to me yeah, so I guess we'll see what things go, but I think Singapore is a very interesting uh, nation in Asia, and I hopefully uh, things keep improving for the better for the people of Singapore. Anyway, with that, um, is there anything else you want to mention, Chris? No, I think that about covers it for us. So, thank you very much for listening to Parliamentary Procedure with Chris and Victor. We'll be back next time with something else that we both find interesting. Until then, uh, enjoy. Let me know if you have any questions, comments, or concerns. Have a good day, everyone.